I don't really know how she got to Montana from Ireland, but to have so many connections that she does, like with the Abbey Theater in Dublin and with Trinity College, just to have worked as much as she did and directed, it's kind of amazing to say that she's like a diamond in the rough would be like a complete understatement, I think. She's really been pushing for a lot of inclusion, a lot of safety within the the way that we do things in the theater. It's really helping to shape an atmosphere that is safe and feels feels nurturing to everybody so that we that we can explore our, ourselves. When we're safe, we're able to do that in a way that can be healthy. I, I appreciate her. I appreciate that she cares about the students, and I know that I'm not the only one who says, hey, I feel like Bird really listens to me. That's a pretty common theme amongst students who've interacted with her, which is the mark of a good professor. Welcome to Confluence, where great ideas flow together, a podcast of the Graduate School of the University of Montana. On Confluence, we take a long float with some of the best and brightest professors and graduate students who contribute to the watershed of wisdom that flows through our campus. I'm your host, Ashby Kinch, Associate Dean of the Graduate School, and I'm delighted to be guiding your sonic float today. You just heard the voices of Ellie Catarasano, David Mills Lowe and Jad Davis talking about our guest, Dr. Bernadette Sweeney. Each episode of Confluence, we select a passage about rivers from literary texts for our guests to read. Some important things happen alongside a river, and in this passage from Twice Shy by the famous Irish writer Seamus Haney, you'll hear Bernadette voicing the ripe tension of love that hangs between two people taking a stroll along a river embankment. Her scarf alabardo in suede flats for the walk. She came with me one evening for air and friendly talk. We crossed the quiet river, took the embankment walk. So cheery and excited as a thrush linked on a hawk, we thrilled to the March twilight with nervous childish talk. Still waters running deep along the embankment walk. As you can hear from the soft lilt of her accent, and we'll hear detailed in the episode that follows, Bernadette has brought to UM her distinctive training and experience as a specialist in Irish theater history, on which she has published two books. In our discussion, she narrates her journey to Montana, some of the work she did on oral history of Irish immigration in Montana, and the ongoing presence of Montanans of Irish descent. We talk about the theater program, her training of graduate student actors and directors, and her broader role on campus and work with the Humanities Institute. Throughout, you'll get a sense of Bernadette's great passion for theater practice as a labile, ever-changing space for performative reinterpretation of enduring classics. In a slight break from our norm, we begin the episode with a second passage about rivers, on the opposite end of the tonal spectrum from Haney's poem. This passage comes after the grim moment in Shakespeare's Hamlet when Ophelia drowns herself in a river. Bernadette reads from the prose passage in Act 5, Scene 1, when the two gravediggers, comic foils to the tragic action of the play, contemplate the dark ironies of the difference between being an active and a passive victim of a river's flood. Bernadette's reading leads straight into our discussion of the interpretive work that goes into staging a Shakespearean play. His corpus of writing is a cultural touchstone like no other in the West. Great minds and dazzling actors have lent their talents to bringing into the space of performance the complex web of words Shakespeare has bequeathed us to decipher. Our Montana students and faculty are intrepid voyagers in this great journey, 
and Bernadette leaves the way with verve, energy, and insight. Welcome to Confluence. We hope you enjoy the float. Give me leave. Here lies the river. Good. Here stands the man. Good. If the man go to this river and drown himself, it is, will he nilly, he goes. Mark you that. But if the river comes to him and drown him, he drowns not himself. Or call he that is not guilty of his own death shortens not his own life. So obviously that's a bit of black humor to start us <laughs> off with. Uh, but I, I, we, I work on Hamlet both in theater history and in an advanced acting class in Shakespeare. And it's always fun to work with the, with the humor, with the prose sections or the sections that aren't in verse because yeah. they're, they ground us in the universalities yeah. and the inevitabilities. And yeah. this, this scene here is so important because it is grounding Hamlet both in his past and in his mortality. And yeah. it, not just Hamlet, but everybody. Everybody, and, yeah. Right. And the audience as well. Yeah. So it's a real, the, uh, oftentimes with, um, with Shakespeare, this is something we really discover in performance more so than in the reading of the text. But so much of it is direct address to the audience or is a knowing aside to the audience. Yeah. And that section to me really reads as something that would be delivered directly to the audience. Yeah, and staging that particular scene of Ophelia's suicide mm-hmm. is, uh, I, I've seen it staged, obviously you've seen it staged Various tons ways. of different yeah. ways, but yeah. but there's a, um, a kind of... Uh, epiphanic quality to it some yeah. in some productions in particular you know they'll they'll um have her almost sort of be a um angelic figure kind of drifting into the river yeah. um how do you how do you feel about that river because it's haunting right it's a haunting yeah. image of, of of it's a brutal way to die it's a brutal way to kill yourself yeah. one thing and we've seen it represented variously it's become an icon yeah culturally the image of ophelia um, we're having some really interesting discussions in theater history in, at the moment and, and across our school about um, representation and agency. Mm. And this is a really interesting play to talk about because um, Ophelia is really drawn as somebody whose life circumstances and, and future is determined for her. She is either her um, father's daughter or she's Hamlet's intended. And and the only alternative to that is the nunnery, as Hamlet tells yeah, her so famously. Yeah, yeah, and of course the the body um, interpretation of that often it's interpreted at that time that nunnery was a euphemism for brothel. For so brothel. either way, she's um, she's not going to have much say in her own life and circumstances. Yeah. Um, so 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 the notion of Ophelia's death as a as a kind of a sacrifice is hugely problematic. Um, and one of the really interesting discussions we have in uh, theater classes, both the studio classes and the literature cl- classes, is this is this extraordinary role, right? And it's a role that has great cultural significance now. It's the kind of role that suits the age of the majority of our f- students. Right. Um, right. Uh, Young, yeah, searching, seeking. Yeah, female. In, in, female, impressionable. Yeah. Uh, hoping for more than life will give you. Yeah. Uh, it's... But of course, the question is that if we keep rep- replicating this rule, what are we saying about it? We can question it or yeah. are we questioning it or are we enforcing, reinforcing her, her lack of 
power. Has there been a production that internalizes her in a way that makes her a more assertive figure or more? I'm thinking, especially, I, I, I'm, you know, this, uh, this is a naive thing to say to someone in theater history, but I remember when Kenneth Branagh's production of Hamlet, mm -hmm. there was a version of the monologue of Polonius's advice, neither mm -hmm. a borrower nor a lender be. Yeah. It was so brilliant. It was one of those moments that sticks out for me, uh, you know, being a literary person, not a yeah. theater person, about how a monologue can be turned inside out. That yeah. monologue got turned inside out in that yeah. production where he became this sort of saccharine, oily, really smart, cagey figure rather than the kind of stupid, bumbling Polonius yeah. of history, of theater history. Is there something like that for Ophelia? Some some way in which that the character in that scene has been turned inside out and yeah. sort of rediscovered? Well, I think to some extent, any production does that. And that's one of the reasons why Shakespeare is still with us and so intriguing for us theater makers to work with because um, there's so much room to, uh, the, the universality gives us access, but then there's still room within it to make it uh, applicable or relevant to what we are going through or what we need to say or what we want to say. There's another um uh, theater production of Hamlet that's been filmed um, so it's on DVD and on um, the internet with D it's an RSC production by Shakespeare um, with David Tennant in the role of Hamlet and it's Oliver Four Davies who's playing Polonius in that yeah. scene and it's brilliant that scene in particular is so brilliant because he's being such a He's being such a, 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 a kind of a helicopter dad, I guess, mm -hmm. in, in current uh, terminology. Yeah. And uh, both Laertes and um, Ophelia, when in, when this camera is filming just them, um, they're mouthing along to some of his yeah, yeah, advice yeah. because they've heard him a yeah. thousand times. It's 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 not a, it's, it's kind of loving in one way, and he's been loving, but in a really kind of a fussy, fuddy duddy kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but their responses to him. Um, shows us their um, their connection, their sibling connection and love for each other. It's yeah. a, the way it's done is so beautiful. It's a connection Hamlet's missing, and it's it. Their family is the other family yeah. of that play, right? It's yeah. the, the the counter family, I guess, yeah, of that yeah, play. Yeah, it's yeah. the closest to uh, functional. I mean, yeah. it's not at all really in one way, but it's it's certainly a more functional version of what poor Hamlet is trying to deal with yeah. at that time. How did you end up at University of Montana? Uh, well, uh, the simple answer to that is I married a Montanan. Um, uh, yeah. But there's there's more to it than that. <laughs> I mean, for example, the Irish uh, oral history project yeah. that you worked on. Yeah. So I, after I got my PhD at Trinity, I was um, faculty at University College Cork and uh, met my husband in Ireland and uh, we lived in Cork for a while. And then I had my, I have two daughters. I had my first daughter, Ruby, and I had a sabbatical. I was finishing my uh, book, Performing the Body in Irish Theatre. So we came here while I was on sabbatical for a year. And that was 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. so Never went back. Didn't go back. Yeah. Tell us about Aist and that whole, is that the right pronunciation? Aist. Aist. Yeah. Uh, tell us about Aist. So, um, Aist is the Irish or Gaelic word for listen. So when I first got here, and I was, you know, working on my book and all those things. And I started to make connections. I had some connections with the Irish Studies program here. Um, and I taught uh, uh, as an adjunct while I was here, as I say, didn't realize I was staying here indefinitely. But I taught a class 
um, on Irish theatre and uh, had connections with the Irish Studies Programme. And then when it became evident that we were staying, I got involved in an oral history project called The Gathering Collected Oral Histories of the Irish of Montana. So I s secured some grants from the Irish government and was the director of this project for a couple of years where we collected the oral histories of the Irish in Montana. And my husband has is uh, Irish on both sides of his family um, from um, the Beara Peninsula in West Cork and from Kerry. Um, Ferreter from Kerry and Downey from Cork. Um, and so he has a very large family. So I had, I could already, I could start just yeah. by <laughs> talking to all of his family. Um, but we got a lot of buy-in really, really quickly from the community, which was lovely. A lot of volunteers. There's a really great um, community here locally uh, of supporters of the Irish Studies Programme yeah. and they all got behind it and of course the Irish Studies Programme did. Um, Ellen Crane at the Butte Silverbow Archive was amazing as were many many others the, um, uh, in Helena as well and, and so on. So a couple quick shout outs to Butte Silverbow Archive yeah, which yeah. Uh, is you know fantastic archive doing yeah. a lot of great publishing work and uh, the UN Press where you can buy yes. a copy of Eicht. Eicht. Aisht. Aisht. Or you so. can buy a copy of Aisht. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I, de uh, I developed an oral history um, documentary theatre project out of it as well. And we collected over 170 interviews. And the work continued after. I, once I went to the theatre programme here, the work continued with Baba Boyle and Trelach Goriardon as well. Um, but uh, while I was here, while I was working on that project, um, I worked with a lot of work-study students, both in the English department and in the media arts program. And we went across the state and interviewed, and many of the volunteers did as well. I wasn't doing all the interviewing. Um, we interviewed uh, over 170 people and we videoed about at least a third, between a third and a half of those, a high quality um, digital video as well. And all of that now is belong to the, is in the hands of the Mansfield Library as part of the Gathering Archive. Um, and that was an extraordinary opportunity. I mean, it was just an amazing life experience that I'm still drawing on. People were so welcoming and were so um, uh, articulate and, uh, uh, and so uh, passionate about their Irish heritage. As an Irish person, it was kind of humbling to meet all these Americans who, who in my mind, were Americans. Yeah. Um, but th their Irishness was very, very, very meaningful to them. Yeah. Um, and so I also developed the, uh, a class uh, with a theatre program around the project where the students would go and interview um, a number of people. And so the interviews would be part of the gathering. So it was kind of doing two, two things, as it were. Uh, but the students would also then choose a monologue and develop it for performance. So we put together this uh, play, if you like, a series of monologues called Aged. Um, and many of the in fact, I think all of the subjects came to mm. see themselves being performed, wow. yeah. which is a huge challenge for the actor to perform a version of the person who's sitting in the third row, yeah, yeah, two yeah. seats in from the left kind of thing. The harshest critic yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, but that was lovely. And so then we developed it into a script and the UN Press uh, published the script. So the, so the many outcomes from that project, which was yeah. great. Your graduate program 
has kind of some unique characteristics. So I wanted to kind of just start by talking a little bit about that, how it's organized, how you admit students, kind of describe this difference between the MA and the MFA and how they interact. Yeah. So we actually have students um, right now in the School of Theatre and Dance who are MFA students or MA students. And we actually right now have one PhD student in interdisciplinary studies as well. And you and I have worked a lot on, on, on making that happen. Um, our MFA students, we take in a cohort in the performance and practice um, program within the School of Theatre and Dance. We take in a cohort every three years of MFA actors and MFA directors. Um, this year, we've, we've started with a new cohort uh, starting this semester. Uh, we have um, we have two MFA directors. We have one MFA music director as well, which is a new departure for us. We're very excited about that. And we have um, four MFA actors. Also in the school, we have two MA students and an MFA costumer in design and technology. She's finishing and our PhD student. So we have a very uh, wide and varied field right now, which is so exciting for us. And and so that, that eclectic quality, how much of it is curated through the admissions process where you're looking to fill niches in a cohort of students so that they can work together? And, you know, and obviously mm -hmm. in one year, you can't have too many directors, can't have too many actors. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of handle that process? Well, we, we're very um, mindful as we're putting that cohort together. Um, we've been more and more, we've been recruiting, we've been trying to get outside of um, the Northwest and moving um, in ever-broadening circles to try and uh, uh, expand our, our options, if you like. Um, so we've, we're getting more proactive in terms of going and looking for students. My, my colleague Pamela Steele has been really in, involved in that process, especially um, with the head of the school, Mike Monsos. Um, we then, obviously, we interview students. So we invite students to campus. Um, most of our current cohort could come to campus, not all of them. And those who couldn't come, we interviewed um, on Skype. Mm. Um, so it, it's interesting. It's not necessarily that we're looking for personalities per se, but it's exciting to see how these things come together. And the current cohort um, are a very, very uh, uh, hugely uh, enthusiastic group who bring very, very different skill sets and interests and each of them. Well, I think it's fair to say that our MFA program, any of our graduate programs, we're working to try and build an independent artist. Mm -hmm. We're not trying to make them into cookie cutter versions of ourselves as mm -hmm. theater artists, or we don't want them all to be the same. Yeah. Um, we're not trying to impose anything that way. We're really trying to facilitate and maximize their potential as graduate students. Um, and then moving forward, helping them to develop as artists. So what kinds of traits then are you kind of looking for and what kinds of um, growth do you expect and hope to see out of your students over the course of their time? Um, well, we're certainly hoping to see them, uh, like I say, maximize their potential um, to, to, to learn. I mean, we're not here to, I, not, neither are we interested in rubber stamping them uh, for a set of a skill set that they come in with. 
um, this isn't an after the fact qualification that they're just tagging onto their skill set so they can go and teach somewhere else. We're really interested in working with them as artists and developing their potential. Um, and I'm thinking of some examples from our, our recent students, um, and they're very varied, but one student, Yamamokuchu, he was very interested uh, in performance as an actor, and he's also a very talented hip hop artist and choreographer. So he did a lot of work with the dance program as well as with the theater program. Which showed up in Everyman. And he performed it, uh, it, very much part of his work as Everyman. Um, and he developed the choreography for that piece as well, for that yeah. production. Uh, but he also developed a piece based on some of his research for Everyman that he performed at um, the Kennedy Center this past summer. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a feather. I know, yeah. How common is that? It's Well... It's, I certainly haven't had that happen before, but in each case with each of the students, we'll find that they uh, develop a specialization that takes them somewhere interesting. Another one of our really recent, or not recent graduates, she'd be the, the class before him, um, Claire Edgerton. She's now the education manager for the um, City Theatre Company run by Anne Bogart in New York, which is one of America's absolutely prime and internationally recognized theater companies they'd wow. be top echelon and she's now working with them which is just extraordinary and she's yeah. wholly deserving she's fabulous um very smart uh came in with a really really interesting range of skills um and is they're taking her further which is great yeah that is amazing well so um partly what we're interested in and highlighting and confluence is, is your role as a mentor and, and, and advisor. We're also interested in your research and mm -hmm. that doctor at the front of your name mm -hmm. matters in your case. Uh, tell us a little bit about your journey, your intellectual journey, what, what got you into theater history and how do you kind of blend uh, theater history and practice and why is that so yeah. important to your art? Yeah, I've always really been interested in the relationship between theory and practice. I always consider myself a practicing artist. Um, and uh, so my, I did my PhD in Trinity College in Dublin and I was working as a young actor and realizing that I wasn't uh, really able to support myself, you know, going from gig to gig. A lot of it was theater um, for young people because uh, that's where the, the kind of the regular money was. Um, a lot of waitressing, that kind of thing. <laughs> Um, and so, venerated, well-trodden path. Yes, of the, yes, uh, of the, yeah, actor. the day job of the actor. <laughs> um, so I uh, enrolled uh, as a master's student at the uh, what was then the Samuel Beckett School of Drama at Trinity College in Dublin, um, and then I transferred to the PhD register. But I was always interested in the integration between theory and practice, and what became an emerging field as I was finishing or around the time midway through my PhD was practices research, mm. where an awful lot of the scholarship in in theater and performance um, was through practice, because of course it is uh, a practical performative art form. And so a lot of the knowledge was being generated through, through the performance moment. Um, so I engaged with some of that in my PhD. Um, and I was teaching as well at the time there, I was teaching acting. Uh, and so that then be just, it's always been the cornerstone of my work as a, as a theater scholar and as a theater maker. Yeah. Uh, so currently one of the projects that I'm working on is I am one of the commissioning editors 
with Frank Chamberlain for the Routledge Performance Practitioner Series. I worked with Frank in UCC before I moved to Montana. And um, he's ba- he's from the UK and he's back in the UK now in Huddersfield uh, University. And he set up the uh, Routledge Performance Practitioner Series. And uh, it, so it's an extant series. Um, but then uh, Routledge approached him to develop a companion to the practitioners and a handbook of studio practice. And he asked me to come on board as co-editor. And now they have decided to relaunch and expand the series. So now we're commissioning new works as well. So each of these books is a, it's a small, they're smallish books. Um, and it, it, each book features a practitioner, like a famous example would be Stan Slavsky, right? right. Um, and there are many others on people like Augusta Boal, and there's a lovely one on dance theatre practitioner, Pina Bausch, et cetera, et cetera. And the books introduce the kind of the biography of the um, the practitioner, the theatre artist, and their um, uh, early works or their company or their uh, professional life and uh, talks about, uh, the third section will talk about a particular work, a very famous piece of work that they might have uh, directed or generated or whatever it might be, or a series of works. And then crucially, what what makes these books so particular is that the last chapter includes exercises that you can bring into the workshop or the studio yeah. and try out yourself as a, as in your own practice or with a group of students or actors if you're in rehearsal, whatever yeah. it might be. So they really democratize the um, the, or demystify the rehearsal process, yeah. and it's they put it. It's a series, so you can compare and you can find points of um, overlap or ways in which they are in conversation with each other, or whatever it might be. So now we're commissioning uh, new ones. It's really really exciting to be doing that. That's fantastic. I mean, I, I can imagine, I don't know market-wise whether this is bearing itself out, but mm-hmm. I can imagine a book like that or a series like that being useful in the literature classroom as well. And I think one of the problems literature professors have in conceptualizing what to do with theater mm-hmm. is that problem of crossing over into, you know, speaking of democratizing, yeah. as non-specialists in the theater, they're probably a little um, leery to yeah. bring those practices into the classroom. And this probably gives them a tool to yeah. kind of do that. With. Yeah, or at yeah. least helps them to imagine how they would begin to approach it. Yeah. Um, or, or, or what happens when this work goes into the rehearsal room. Because yeah. one of the things that Frank and I are really working on at the moment as we're trying to put together the companion is um, what are the circumstances within which this work then lives? And obviously it varies hugely depending on who picks up the book. Right. The circumstances where this work originated um, is very much a set of professional circumstances. And so the outcomes will be different, but that doesn't mean that you can't um, uh, approach the work. Right. Uh, uh, Frank often talks about this almost like a recipe book that you don't have to be in I don't know Julia Child's kitchen to make her <laughs> recipe it yeah, might yeah, turn yeah. out the same yeah um, but the recipe is uh, what you what's is, is what's available to you yeah and yeah. you can do what you want with it then yeah and I've always been amazed um, in conversations with with directors about how um, they do enormously sophisticated interpretive work on the text side of a play in the course of producing it. But then over time, 
you know, the, the pressures of practice mean you have to kind of go and actually make that interpretation of physical reality and do mm -hmm. something with it on the stage. And I think that's the bit that the literature professor doesn't have to do, right? They can, yeah. they can turn around and teach the same text the next time and run an entirely different interpretation. But in yeah. a sense that, you know, it's also, a, there's a performative quality to that, right? I mean, you're re-performing the text yeah. just in the imagination rather than in the physical. I've learned so much, I think by, you know, again, I think back to our conversations about every man, but in thinking through that lens, even when you're not turning around and practicing it, it makes you think about the body differently. It makes mm -hmm. you think about the, the presence that lies behind uh, those words when they need to be vocalized on yeah. stage. Yeah. And the one thing I think that we always come back to as theater makers is you're not just performing it once. It has to be sustainable mm -hmm. and um, it has to be something you can replicate over a period of however long your run is. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's often interesting, you'll see some artists coming back to a work much later. Um, so Ian McKellen, for example, in the Roxy recently, that National Theatre series um, showed him playing Lear. Anyway, he had played Lear 10 years previously mm -hmm. as well. And there's some really interesting interviews out there where he talks about the difference in, not just in the two productions and their kind of production values and aesthetics, but the difference for him sure. in playing the role. 10 years closer to death. Yeah, exactly. For Lear, for Lear you better face your mortality yeah. square in the eyes to, yeah. to get that role. And deeply. also 10 years more in your own body and it's, yeah. and it's aging. And it's aging and it's decay. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things I, that I think that always inform my work is the livedness of the work, that you live in the work, that you have to breathe in the work. Mm -hmm. So I teach an advanced acting class in Shakespeare, for example, we were talking about this earlier, um, that the Shakespeare in performance is so different to Shakespeare on the page mm -hmm. because it was, it was developed in performance Shakespeare himself was a performance practitioner. He wasn't sitting in his attic writing mm -hmm. by himself. At UM, you're particularly valuable, uh, I think, as an example of the importance of having faculty that can move comfortably across multiple colleges and universities and maintain communication between and among. And I think um, your scholarship, which so many of us in, uh, in the English department and in the humanities side, we respect You know that, that you've really done incredible scholarship as well as your art. Um, so tell me a little bit about the Humanities Institute and your participation in that and how you think, you know, why it's important for you in particular to be part of the Humanities Institute and, and to work as a board member. Uh, yeah, I was really thrilled to be approached to be part of that, which um, in a sense, I think there's a, there's, there, there's a div division is the wrong word because it sounds negative, but there's definitely a, a split between the practice of theater making and the scholarship of theater making. Um, and uh, I, I see that much more so still in place here from what I've experienced of American theater academia um, than um, in Ireland or amongst the Irish and um, uh, British theater academics who would have been kind of the conference circuit that I was moving in. Mm -hmm. um, or that I do move in when I'm in Europe. And so the, the, again, that, that the, the, the engagement and the, the inter-reliance of theory and practice is so central to what we do as theater makers. And that split between theory and practice has really been breaking down over the last few years, which is, I think, really exciting. Um, and w 
uh, I think one of the reasons why I'm so uh, I'm so committed to being part of the Humanities Institute is because it it is giving our students an, a, a link to scholarship. So often our world is in the party V building or in production, we're in rehearsal, we're going from one production to the next. It's, you know, it's a it's a world of late night rehearsals and late night tech runs and it's all about casting and performance. Yeah. Um, and to a lesser extent, it is uh, all about performance for the dancers too. We're, we're trying to have more and more of a an outreach into the community. Um, mm with the new artistic director of the Montana Repertory Theatre, Michael Legg. He's really taking a lot of the work out into the community, which is really lovely. The dance- Plays in cars. Plays in cars. Look out for plays in hotel rooms coming up. <laughs> um, the dance, um, uh, the dancers are really good at that. My dance colleagues um, with dance and location and dance in the community. Um, Bear Bait Dance Company that, you know, we I, you saw that work that I did with them uh, last year. Um, and and so we're trying to break that down. But I think one of the other things we have to break down is a split between, like I say, production and performance and scholarship. And as the theater history professor, a lot of that teaching, at the kind of the more formal teaching, um, is down is kind of my load, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, and I like to be able to give st- to model for students um, publication, publication opportunities conference um participation especially for the graduate students but for the undergraduates as well yeah um and so the because the, a lot of the publication and funding opportunities on campus come through the humanities institute i like to be involved so i can make those opportunities available to them yeah and from the other side of that i'm, I'm you know from the outset when we were building the mission of the humanities institute we really did want to make sure that um we reached out across campus and that we thought of humanities in the broadest possible way. I mean, you know, it's not at all, uh, you know, an exaggeration to say that there's a crisis in the humanities culture wide in the United States arts as well. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting, you know, that boundary, I have colleagues in the humanities that want to police that boundary between the humanities and the arts because they feel like uh, humanities oftentimes is kind of brought over onto the indiscriminately lumped, you Mm -hmm. know, within, within the arts community. But we don't perform, you know, professors don't perform, professors don't draw audience, professors don't uh, go out in the community and perform. Um, and then there's colleagues, I think, on the other side of that who say that, that, that that's there's a kind of strength in reminding ourselves that it's the core of a culture. The core of a culture is the ways in which people who read, think and reflect on the past and on its history um, recreate that culture in the present. And that's mm-hmm. what the arts do. I mean, that's one of the things they do in, in addition to creating new art. So important to have you involved yeah and just, like i say it's always a pleasure i i i'm reminded of um so so much the, the job is so different here than it is than it was in ireland my job is such a different job hmm. um and it's it's important to what i try to do is bring the best of both worlds together in both in my scholarship but also in my teaching and to give the, again to give the students and the graduate students practical skills, um, but also you know interpretive skills and uh, critical thinking, and hopefully then critical practice and critical writing. Okay, here's the quick hitters: morning or night person. Oh, night. 
Or Root River or Clark Fork. Clark Fork. Pintlers and Missions. Missions. Yellowstone or Glacier? Glacier. Winter or summer? Oh, summer, summer, summer. <laughs> I can't stand it. What uh, what has been most exotic? I mean, is the one of the most exotic thing? What's been the most exotic thing about locating to this area? Yes, definitely the weather. Yeah. Yeah. And then the summer too, because the summers are so hot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's huge. And I'll never get used to it. <laughs> and with that, been lovely talking to you. Thanks so much for taking some time. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed your time floating on the river of knowledge with us. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a like on SoundCloud and stop by the University of Montana Grad School website at www.umt.edu grad for more episodes and videos highlighting our amazing graduate students. Mm-hmm.